Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. This is E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed. Hope you're well. This one is sponsored by Bruce. If you're working from home and have canceled your in-person stuff lately as a result of the pandemic, you might have dodged your dentist appointment. Thankfully, Bruce is taking care of your oral hygiene through state-of-the-art electric toothbrush technology shipped direct to you. It was developed in collaboration with dentists to ensure an amazing clean via ultra soft bristles, six cleaning modes, and sonic wave technology. It also makes an amazing holiday gift. And with Christmas just around the corner, you might be thinking about this for you or maybe for a loved one. Either way, don't forget to go to bruce.com. That's B-R-U-U-S-H. That's two U's. Dot com. And use the code E215. That's E215 for 15% off. My guest on the show is one of the youngest individuals inducted into the Marketing Hall of Legends. He is Tony Chapman, who has had a storied career in the agency world and has spoken around the globe on various topics related to marketing, advertising, branding, and communication. In this one, we chat obviously quite a bit about big brands, including those who are listed on the latest Forbes Global Brand Rankings, including names like Coke, Amazon, Facebook, Airbnb, TikTok, Uber, Lyft, and many others. We also discuss early childhood education as well as the future of higher ed post-pandemic, the latest trends in big retail, and of course the agency world, the importance of selling into moments, and how difficult it is to capture attention, and much more. And with that, let's get to the show. You know, from your days servicing the likes of Cadbury, Pepsi, Walmart, Dove, Sun Life, you know, so much has changed. What were the key challenges, say, a decade ago, two decades ago, when you were running Capital C? And what are the major hurdles that you're seeing today? Well, the common denominator since the very beginning of brands and marketing is attention. Attention's your oxygen. Uh, attention's your only path towards engaging the consumer, uh, you know, convincing and persuading them to uh, try your product, to buy your product or service. 20 years ago, uh, attention really came down to who could shout the loudest. They would win the battle. So if you could outshout your competition in mass media, those were the days when 70 million people would tune into All in the Family or you, you made sure you were home at 8 o'clock to watch Jerry Seinfeld on a Thursday night because if you missed it, you'd have to wait to the summer reruns. So mass media, you wrote a big check in mass media 
and you backed it up with big distribution. And those days, the brands had the control of retail. I mean, retail uh, bowed to the likes of Coca-Cola coming into their stores. So it really was about who shouts loudest wins. So then you got your proportionate market share if your product could stand, uh, stand up against your competition. And people bought in and consumers were absolutely mesmerized by things like I'll walk a mile for a camel or frosted flakes is the start of a perfect breakfast. That's what it was all about. It was about shouting loud and, uh, and this big drift net, one size fits all. And if you were a marketer in advertising, you, you came up with a campaign, a slogan, a cartoon character, and you put all your chips against that big campaign and you made sure that uh, every dollar went to, uh, to capturing uh, mass attention for your mass brand. Today, things are very different. Uh, today, the consumer is demanding a much more personalized solution. Coke is no longer it. Uh, I, I won't walk a mile for anything because my, my phone is my, uh, my vending machine to the world. And marketers have to be very clever. They have to be very courageous in terms of getting the attention that they feel they deserve. And to me, the ones that succeed are the ones that really have a role to play in my life. They matter. So it, it's all about having a real role. And I think brands have got to think about themselves less about being the hero of the story and proclaiming they're great and surrounding themselves with celebrities that are great and have a much greater sense of humility today and say, I can help you get to where you need and deserve to go. But for me to do so, I have to be authentic. I have to be relevant. And most importantly, it has to be about your quest and your journey in life, not what I imagine it to be. So with big tech and uh, this issue of attention, you're seeing a ton of brands struggling in this arena. And obviously technology is moving so quickly. So when you talk about creating this humility, and this is what brands need to do in order to make stuff happen, how do they do that, practically speaking? You have to really understand the customer that you're after and what their desired end game is. And that end game could be just, I want to get back into better shape. I, I want to feel more safe and secure. That end game could be, I want to retire with dignity. But you really have to understand the end game and that horizon. And then you've got to decide, do you have a role in that play? Can you be the Yoda in that story? You're not there to defeat the evil empire. You're there to help your customer do so. So technology today is allowing you to get incredible data on the customer. You can get a real sense of how they're thinking, feeling, and doing on an almost minute-by-minute -minute basis. But humility is all about realizing that you're there to serve that customer's journey. There's a higher purpose than just making product and market share, that you really are there to help and enable. And I think the brands that understand that today are doing very well and absolutely leveraging technology and data to give them those insights. But more importantly, they're laddering themselves in a very different way than in the past where they really felt, again, that Coke was it. I found something that I thought was quite interesting. Forbes released its list of top 100 global brands. Uh, Coke is on that list, in addition to uh, some names that many listeners will obviously be familiar with, including Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Disney, Samsung, McDonald's, and Louis Vuitton, all of which made the top 10, by the way. Um, one thing I found interesting were the brands who saw the biggest year-over-year -year value gains versus those who lost the most value year-over-year. -year. So the biggest gains went to Netflix, Amazon, Microsoft, PayPal, and surprisingly Chanel. 
And on the flip side, the largest slides to the downside include Wells Fargo, Ford, GE, uh, Mercedes-Benz, and maybe surprising to some, I'm not sure, but Facebook. So what do you, what do you make of all this? Is there a key takeaway here? Absolutely. Three key takeaways. First of all, that most of the brands that really saw gains really embody what I'm talking about, that they, you know, uh, Apple puts a thousand songs, 10,000, 3 million songs in my pocket. It makes uh, it, it makes technology plug and play. When you look at Uber, I can summon a chariot. I don't have to go on a street with an umbrella and pouring rain, hoping the taxi takes pity on me. You know, when you look at Netflix, it's it's content on demand. Uh, I can share it. I can binge walk it. I can decide if I want to devote my entire day towards it. I can contribute to the conversation in social media. I can discover things that no one else has because everybody knew about Seinfeld. But if I'm the first one to watch Rake and I love it and I talk to my friends about it, I help validate my role in social media as being a curator of content. Where you look at uh, Chanel, to me, I think is interesting because it is really reflects a time right now where we're dealing with economic uncertainty. And it's almost the uh, it's the sense of I can still buy luxury without having to invest my life savings in it. So I can buy a a Chanel perfume. I can still feel like I'm spoiling myself with with something and, and, and indulging myself without breaking my bank. In terms of the car companies, they've lost a lot of them have lost the plot because the world's changing. It's it's uh, it's at a crossroads between electric powered and carbon power. And cars are still talking about being the ultimate driving machine. The Teslas of the world are striking a different emotional chord with people that are saying, I can not only get around town, but I can drive with something that has a higher purpose. It might be better for the planet. Facebook, I think, is just a great example of a company that lost a plot. They, they, you know, what they started off being was this, the ultimate high school annual. I will never get rid of Facebook because I've got all my pictures there. I've got my memories there, my stories. I can connect there. But what they took advantage of, and we, you know, consumers should have said nothing is free in life. How am I getting all this incredible stuff? The essence of Facebook, though, continues to grow. It's now called WhatsApp. It's called TikTok. It, you know, it's called, uh, you know, you could argue Minecraft, where people are coming together in a social network and seeking validation and affirmation and connections. But the Facebook itself really uh, went from being the, uh, I think, will become the MySpace of our generation. Yeah, and Facebook, I mean, is has done amazingly well to create this fortress around that social media moat that they've had for so long, uh, specifically through those acquisitions of WhatsApp, who you mentioned, and also and uh, obvious to many, Instagram, uh, which is where most people spend their time on social these days. But TikTok is an interesting one. How do you see TikTok evolving? I think TikTok is a, is a real threat to anybody seeking attention, whether I'm Facebook or any other brand, because what it's allowed is it allows uh, individuals to very easily become Steven Spielberg. I, I can create uh, the, the, a, not a 10,000 piece puzzle. It's a few second video. Uh, I can post it. I can get immediate affirmation for it. I don't have to wait for a box office to open up. So it's, uh, it's almost like if you're a retailer, there's nothing more exciting than hear your cash register ring. You put something up originally on Facebook or Instagram, but now TikTok, which is even more creative. And it, it, it's, and if it resonates, it's like a, a pinball game where you are the pinball wizard. So it is a threat to anybody that, that realizes that consumers are much more interested in creating and publishing their own content and building their own publishing empire 
than merely being a voyeur on somebody else's. And that's where I think TikTok is just taken the, 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 the Facebook model and gone one step further. So it without question, it's a threat. Now, uh, depending on who buys it, I mean, when it gets acquired and does it become still this kind of uh, uh, utopia, dystopia, social media site, or is it going to become much more what we're now seeing even on LinkedIn, where, you know, I can have stories now on LinkedIn and it, you know, it just becomes a, a, a you know, an epicenter to mine with all sorts of different advertising ideas. Time will tell. Speaking of TikTok and the way that it's structured, ByteDance, who's the pair company, still says it controls the majority stake of TikTok. But of course, there's this situation with Oracle. I'm not sure how this is all going to play out. Where do you see Twitter in all of this? Traffic has been way up since the beginning of the pandemic, yet the company is still struggling with monetizing their audience. I think they're going to continue to struggle because in the, at the essence of it is that citizen journalism is magic. It, it's, it's fantastic. It allows us to bypass censorship. It allows us to, to put our emotions out and, to, and have it raw in real time. But, you know, you talk about that as the, 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 there's no moat because inside that, inside the moat that surrounds Twitter is a lot of toxic, angry people. And probably the lead singer of that band uh, for the last year has been Donald Trump, if not for the last four years. Yes. And he, he really embodies what Twitter's all about. Although what's interesting, I find, is that Twitter has done an amazing job of censoring uh, much of what Donald Trump is doing on the platform. And as a company, if you're talking about where they lean on the political spectrum, they are all the way left versus, say, Facebook, who has most of Trump's user base. I mean, now they're moving to this other platform called Parler. Is it is it Parler or Parker? I don't even know. But most of his base was on Facebook. And you could argue that Facebook was sort of uh, leaning right through this uh, election or leading up to it. You know, that's that's the state of media today is there's no middle ground. There's no status quo. You're either, you know, you pull at the right or you pull at the left because that's where you, you get your eyeballs. It takes us back to the first sentence where attention's your oxygen. And I think what Trump has that we need to realize is he has an incredible empire when it comes to the amount of followers he has in social media. And the Republicans are scared of that because they know that 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 army that he has can turn on anybody almost immediately. And I think that's his Twitter base, as censored as you might think it is, is the reason why he hasn't been forced to, uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, turn the election over and say Biden won and do so with grace, because he still feels he has the, uh, the, the, uh, the head, heart and hands of, of tens of millions of Americans. So I wouldn't discount Twitter because Twitter still creates an awful lot of power within the Republican base, as does Facebook. Yep. You mentioned Uber. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about Lyft relative to Uber. So Uber, you know, they, they give that, that, um, that brand experience that you're talking about. Do you feel like this is going to be a market ultimately won and controlled by Uber in the end? Or does Lyft have a role to play here? I mean, you see these cars all over major cities. They've got stickers of both brands on the on the car. Uh, it's hard to differentiate the customer experience. What do you see happening here? Is Lyft doing something different? Are they masquerading as another Uber? What's going on? Well, I worked with Pepsi organization for three decades when I was in the agency business. And uh, 
uh, you know, I was always uh, amazed by you could walk into a restaurant completely owned by Pepsi, every cooler, signs, the menu, the glasses, and somebody would say, can I have a Coke? And that's what happens when you're the first in, first mover advantage. Now, you go to some markets like Quebec, Newfoundland, Russia, and people only knew of Pepsi. So it really is a market-by-market basis. Uber was the first out. They bet big, raised a tremendous amount of capital. And I think ultimately, I still wonder if that model can survive because it's going to be political football, football, given the fact that a lot of people uh, are feeling very marginalized, especially since COVID. And Uber's a big brand to kick around a demand, and for good reason, a lot more rights for their workers. I mean, they're, they're the, the, so being number one and being the flagship, it's got an incredible advantage in terms of market momentum, mm-hmm. but it also makes you the, uh, the lightning rod. And that's the thing I wonder with with Uber. Is it going to become? Who was the one that had the original uh, Spotify? Uh, Napster music. Napster. I mean, they became the lightning rod for stealing content. So it's it's hard to say, but I, I think that for sure that's it's a similar product. I love competition. I'd love to see more competition in every part of our economy. I'd like to see a lot of small businesses succeed. But it's becoming uh, sadly in this world of where there's no middle ground. It's becoming a very fertile place for big, big brands and business and the platform economy to absolutely uh, take market share while uh, the consumer and politicians sleep. Do you see a lot of short-term pain here for long-term gain as it relates to small business? And why I ask you that question is, uh, we've seen historically some incredible companies built during recessions. So do you see, uh, notwithstanding the death of small business in a lot of different industries, um, a lot of big opportunities here? Well, I think any, th- listen, we're at a wor- world right now that's so much disruption where uh, uh, an app can ride like a Trojan horse into your phone and completely <laughs> compromise uh, a supply chain and a, and a loyalty chain that's been built for decades. I mean, who owns the customer nowadays? Uber Eats or McDonald's? Bookings.com or Hilton Hotels? So there's no question there's opportunity for innovators to, to, to become part of this platform economy, to c- compress the supply chain, to knock out the intermediary, to, to bring something that was w- once the domain of others. And have an incredible success because we no longer need shipping lanes. We no longer need uh, access to water. We no longer need uh, even the, the scale of cities. All we need is a cloud. And if we can put ourselves into a cloud, we can succeed. So it's in, in the most fertile ground ever for innovation. On the other hand, when you talk about traditional small business, the problem with small business right now is they can't afford or access the kind of technology that big business can can invest in with almost zero cost of capital. And they, they don't have that. So they're going to be fighting for scraps where we're going to see more and more all the retail rivers flow to Amazon and, uh, you know, uh, all the uh, uh, all the data that goes into the cloud be harvested by a handful versus the versus many. You mentioned Hilton. So one interesting story in the world of IPOs, let's say. Airbnb is going public next month, and we're recording today in the end of November. So uh, we'll go public in December. They've got currently 4 million hosts and roughly 7.4 million listings of home rentals. And interestingly about this company, uh, I read a stat that 90% of their bookings are organic. 
meaning that their customer acquisition on nine out of 10 customers is zero. Is this one of the greatest brands of the next decade? Oh, without question. I mean, anytime you have metrics like that where customers are chasing you, and I bet you if you peeled it back, that are being referred by other happy customers. I mean, that's ultimately the best business to be in. Where do you see newspapers heading? And, you know, everyone was calling for the death of newspapers in the age of digital. But you have use cases like the New York Times, for example, who now have 500,000 paying subscribers in 200. Actually, I think that number was 500,000 in 2012 and has since grown, excuse me, to 4 million paying subscribers. So what has the New York Times done right? And what could other uh, newspapers and news outlets learn from this? You know, you ask fantastic questions. So it's a great thing. We just talked about it. It's the first mover advantage that that journalism matters is when the Times came out. It had a great brand and it established a position that says uh, we will be unbiased. We're still going to do investigative journalism. I did a, a podcast with Megan Toohey, who was the, person, the uh, New York Times reporter mm-hmm. that broke the story in Harvey Weinstein. And so you're getting journalism that still matters versus the Canadian press article that you can see in a half a dozen newspapers. It really even hasn't got a headline changed. So when it comes to that, it's, New York Times is like what Uber is doing. They've got first mover advantage. I would argue that with, out of the COVID, we're going to see universities change, that the people are going to realize that if I can get an education online, why, why not go to Harvard? Why not go to the London School of uh, Economics? And there'll be uh, a half a dozen, maybe a dozen universities around the world, or maybe three universities per, per discipline that will stand above all and will have this massive subscription base and produce even better content and, and, and attract the best professors. And, and they will win where everybody else, it was all about proximity or my dormitory experience or my football team are going to have a hard time to struggle. And I think that is the in some ways, the sadness of what's this new world of technology is going to be, uh, uh, there'll be less and they'll be doing more. And uh, I think that's, that's it's not only going to be, uh, it's going to be evident in, in almost every sector. And I think uh, education is the next one to go that way. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's your take on big retail, Tony? So Lululemon, right, seems to be the unicorn here. Unbelievable run uh, over the past five, 10 years. Uh, The stock price is reflective of that. What does Lululemon get right here? Well, for for, when Lululemon started, it was very smart that it just did one thing very, very well. It targeted a yoga consumer and it added fashion to form. And very similar to what Braun did years ago when they made blenders attractive as opposed to something you want to hide in a drawer. So they, and that was how they began. And they started growing and obviously they, they could expand, they could bring in men, they could bring in more product. Then they had some real hiccups with their CEO, their founder, who, who just completely was the opposite of every value thought Lululemon. But when they brought new leadership in, they realized they were onto something that, that 
you know, people want, don't want to just feel good and, and, and uh, they want to look good. That's just human nature. That's not a voyeurism exhibition. It's just something. And they've really stuck to their knitting and they've done great products and great design. And for that reason, I think that, that they are our success story. I would argue in Toronto, Mastermind Toys is another one. And their insight was not only are we going to have unique toys that you can't get anywhere else, we're actually going to wrap them for you right in the store. So when you leave, the smile's on your face knowing that you're buying a gift for someone to unwrap. And I think that's what retail does really well is they understand the desired end game as opposed to just selling merchandise. I, years ago, I was working with Holt Renfrew. And I, you know, you're going to Holt Renfrew, and if you weren't dressed up, they wouldn't even serve you. And even if you did, they did serve you, very often the best they could do is just point in direction. So if I go in and say, you know, I'm not looking for a pair of jeans, they go, yeah, they're over there. Well, you know, the internet was showing up. And my jeans were also available on my phone. So I worked with them and started to say, stop selling merchandise. Stop thinking you're the preeminent retailer and focus on moments. And the difference would be is I'd go up and say, hey, I'm looking for jeans. If the person looked up and smiled and said, hey, why? What's going on? And I was happy to have a conversation. Well, I'm going skiing. And you go, skiing? At a prey ski party? Have I got an outfit for you? And you could sell into that moment. And I think that that, that is, to me, the essence of everything I'm talking about. It's not about uh, the products you sell. It's not about what you believe to be exceptional customer service. It's about understanding where that customer that's in front of you is heading in life and how can you help them get there. There's a company that, that I admire the most and dislike the most is one company, and it's Amazon. And I admire them because they put a vending machine on everybody's phone. I admire them because they they went with categories like books that I didn't have to see or feel to beginning, but they've continued to perfect their model that people are buying fashion. Mattresses that I used to go in a store and lie on for three hours. They they systematically are taking on every sector of the economy, including healthcare. And I think that's where retail is going to ultimately end up. If we don't do something quick, all rivers are going to point to Amazon and we're going to be dealing with a, a company committed to one day, I think his, his ultimate prize would be, I am the only one working at Amazon. Everything else has been automated. And that's really what he stands for. And that's why I continue to fight my cause to make sure we shop local. Yep. Um, I think 150 million or so Americans currently have a Prime membership, uh, which is about half the country. So it's unbelievable. Half the country pays $99 every year for the, the permission to do it. Now, he puts a lot of benefits on that. But that data he's getting, every time you buy an, uh, uh, an Amazon device for your home, uh, everything you're doing, everything you're searching for, the algorithms that are turning, is they're, they're, they're fly fishing with the exact bait that'll hook you at the exact moment when you're hungry compared to the retailer down the street that hopes you walk into their store. I just want to come back to big box retail for one sec because you mentioned Holt Renfrew uh, and as two Canadians talking here, do you see Holtz suffering the same fate as Neiman Marcus and Barney's in the U.S.? Without question. I mean, the Weston family is one of the most brilliant retailers. I mean, they own shoppers and they own Loblaw, so they got deep pockets. They can keep it going, but there's no reason to go into a Holt Renfrew anymore. It's lost its magic. The events that it used to put on, uh, Andrew Jennings used to be the CEO when I worked with Holtz. And he would put on events. You would, you would feel special going in there. Your heart would beat when you went up that escalator. And he would take he would take over 500 square feet and just hang one piece of art that any and, and today is crowded with merchandise, rack jobbers. There's available space that they're trying to sell off to make cash. 
the only way Holtz could ever regain itself is almost to to be the people that are going all over the world to discover pieces you can't get anywhere else, to be, be a true curator as opposed to being a, a you know, purveyor of luxury goods. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to Amazon for a sec. So I, I got these stats right now. So uh, roughly 120 million Amazon uh, individual prime members in the U.S. That equates to 52% of American households. So that is more than 51% of American households that go to church, 49% that own a landline, perhaps not surprising. Uh, but here's the uh, interesting one. More than 40, the 52 is more than 44% of American households who own a gun. So there you go. That's how powerful Prime is. It's, and by the way, just so we, let's not lose sight. They also own Zappos and hundreds yes. of other trap mm-hmm. lines out there. It's not just Amazon. They're, they are fishing in a number of different ponds. And if they decide that they want to get in the AK-47 business, I promise you they won't go after those 44% of the households with Amazon. They will buy or acquire a brand. And you won't even know that it's Amazon. So it's, it's listen, the guy, the guy's a, uh, a master chess player. And if we don't stop them, the, uh, their, their banks will overflow to the point where they just drown out every sector, including automotive, financial services, healthcare, pharmacy. It won't just be about parcels coming to your door with, uh, with a T-shirt in them. And Amazon's already bought PillPack, right? So they are moving in the pharmacy direction. Uh, we didn't talk about the acquisition of Whole Foods, which happened in 2017. Um, and obviously AWS, Amazon Web Services, which is a behemoth at something like 19 or 20 billion a year in revenue. Yeah. And let's, let's just look at Whole Foods and people laughed. I did a television interview on that and saying when they legalize cannabis next year with Biden in power mm-hmm. in most states did not make it federally legal. And the boomer and Whole Foods decides to get into the cannabis cannabis business with the most organic and pure because everybody thinks about what's in that pot. Think about how fast they will pay back that acquisition cost by just simply having Whole Foods cannabis available. This is, again, a chess player that's playing a five dimensional chess game at a grandmaster's level uh, against uh, old rules. And by the way, he never has to show a profit. He has told his shareholders. I don't care about profit. I care about market share and share price. And I think when he made that announcement, uh, which was two quarters ago or something like that, um, that he would not pay a dividend or something and reinvest all of those profits that Amazon generated after the first quarter post-COVID. So I guess it was March through June. That stock like skyrocketed after that announcement. So investors are applauding this. Well, again, if you're buying into a company that's got 52% of households are prime shoppers and only 15% of all retail right now is Mm e-commerce, if he never grew another market share and just took that 15% to 30% or 45%, now add to that that it's going to be 52% of households and 58 and 64 because now I'm not only going to get my uh, prime network, I'm probably going to get a free phone with it because the data is going to be worth more than the, the phone signal. This guy is right now unstoppable. He would be up for antitrust in any other time in history. But America's uh, consumed with China taking over their superpower status. And again, the grandmaster is playing that gambit better than anyone I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's going to be hard to compete with Bezos. Uh, 
what I have noticed is a lot of direct-to-consumer brands are using this kind of anti-Amazon approach and going hyper, hyper niche. And you see countless examples of this, you know, even, you know, men's bathing suit companies. Uh, I'm thinking of a company called Bather. There's women's swimsuit companies that just sell women's swimsuits online. Uh, Specific, you know, t-shirt companies that are going incredibly niche and doing well. Is this the future of direct-to-consumer in order for Amazon uh, not to be in your competitive mix? Absolutely. Highly personalized. People want to feel it was curated for them. They want to be original, but at the same time, they want to know that it's validated. The product they're buying is a good product. Now, add to those companies, most of them have a higher purpose. They're either giving back, they're supporting local workers, they're organically sourced materials. Ladder that all up, and there's an absolute customer base for you. But I can promise you down the road, as they take on size, I'll be interested to see how long Amazon lets them go before they either replicate it or acquire them. And let them keep going as being the anti-Amazon, but knowing that the tributary ultimately washes into the Amazon River. Let's shift gears for a moment and talk about um, what's going on with people. So lots of folks have been laid off or they're having to pivot in some way or they're thinking about the next venture or chapter. Resumes are, are being polished up, although who knows if resumes are even relevant anymore. How do people stand out? How do people get attention? Is LinkedIn the new resume? Well, it's a great, great question. First of all, let's talk about this great divide again. The haves are doing very well with COVID. They're working. Nobody asked for COVID. Nobody wants COVID, but they're working at home. They're not spending the money they used to spend. So there's been an additional $90 billion put into deposit accounts in Canada since the beginning of COVID because there's a lot of people that have actually done financially well can't wait to get back to restaurants and travel again, but they're not as marginalized as we like to think. And that's why things like the housing market's doing well. Who's being hurt the most is the service economy. These are the people sometimes working two or three jobs to make ends meet. And they are being, uh, uh, you know, we're keeping them on life support or they would be marching on the streets right now. There would be anarchy. The other thing I'd want to point out is that as you come out of this, in, uh, COVID has just compressed a lot of change in six months. But pre-COVID, we were dealing with automation, AI. We're dealing with uh, people trying to take labor out of their supply chain, trying to compress the supply chain. So overall, we are dealing with a time in life where it's going to be marked by, again, no middle ground to stand on. You're either going to make things happen and have, as you said, an opportunity, an unbelievable purpose and wealth in life, or you're going to watch what happened and be... uh, hoping for a handout. And that's a horrible part of where society is heading right now. And so I think that what we've got to do as a a society is realize that these people need purpose and jobs. It's not universal income that makes you happy. People might say, I I can't wait to just sit at home and I get my universal income check. I can promise you that almost everybody in life that I've met with shining eyes, shoulders back, heart beating, excited, had purpose. That purpose could be, I love delivering newspapers to my, to, to my uh, three blocks because there's a couple of people on there that just can't wait for that greeting in the morning. They've had, that, it doesn't have to be a big job. It just has to be something that, that means and matters. And that's the thing that I'm most concerned about as we come out of COVID is resumes are not, there's not going to be a lot. There's going to be less jobs. It's going to require new skill sets. 
Our education is absolutely asleep and paralyzed by teaching the old way with textbooks and, and big summers off and, and tenure and, and, and entitlement when this, the next generation coming up has got to be ar you know, absolutely armed with critical thinking skills, ability to co collaborate, pivot, lifetime appetite for learning, energy, excitement. And I think that we're, we're going to be hitting a wall. And I think that as a society, like a lot of other societies that ultimately fail, you're going to have the haves doing uh, with such immense richness and wealth and a growing number of the have-nots. And, and one day that will snap. And that was called the French Revolution and every other revolution we've seen since the beginning of time. And uh, unless we find a way to distribute wealth better, we're going to head that way. Mm -hmm. A lot of important points to hit on. Uh, not sure we can do that in the next <laughs> five, 10 minutes. But just on the topic of education, are you saying, I mean, you're a parent, do you think that the onus of responsibility or accountability as it relates to our children's education now falls on parents? Parents absolutely have to start marching. They have to start protesting. We should never allow teachers to strike. There is, kids are an essential service. Our end game has to be, are we equipping the next generation with a chance, a fighting chance? In a world where machines are coming after their jobs and the, all the, every country in the world is coming after their jobs because the, the playground's now the clouds. There's no border to protect them. Mm -hmm. So that's so. And we know our politicians are weak. They're nowhere they're going to go against the union vote. Uh, because that's what keeps them in power. And the so we've got to protest and we got to fight back and we got to say, this is what we demand. And if you don't like it, move aside. We've got to pay the best teachers twice as much money and reward them for their passion and their contribution to our children's future. And the weak teachers we get rid of. Just like everything else, it's got to be survival of the fittest because at the end game ultimately is the next generation we are failing them right now. These people have a job for life, a pension for life, and they more importantly have a higher purpose, which is to, to do what they got into teaching originally to do, is to teach kids and stop being seduced by a union that thinks you're so self-important that you can somehow dictate our kids' future. So what do you... What, and that's, I know that's fighting words. Yeah. Those are my words I've been fighting with for over three or four years in the, in the media and yep. in social media. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of listeners that will agree with you for sure. Um, to, to your point earlier about uh, paying the best teachers more and, and getting rid of the teachers that are less effective, how do you propose we do that here in Canada, uh, and I'm talking about the public sector, when where the union is, is so powerful? You know, people often think I'm anti-union. I'm absolutely pro-union when it comes to protecting and enshrining the rights of your workers. Mm -hmm. Where I get really upset with unions is where they try to use their money for a political agenda you know, where they accept millions of dollars from a provincial government and then next thing you know, run ads to support that government when it's in elections. I, that it just calls an absolute abuse of the privilege you have to organize and support the people that, that count on you. So I'm not anti-union, but I, the only way we're going to solve this is privatize schools. And you might have to start with, I'm not talking about privatizing the thirty dollars or $40,000 that the, the elite can afford. I'm talking about allowing some schools to emerge. So we got to bring technology in. We got to take it, stop this summer off for harvest and understand science has proven that we've got uh, modules of teaching with smaller breaks and organize it so parents can organize their lives as opposed to sabotaging families and creating tension and angst within it because the teachers decide that yet again, they're going to go on strike and hold us hostage. So in the last five minutes or so, 
I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about agencies. You have how many decades of experience running an agency? So I ran uh, over 32 years. I built and sold two advertising agencies in a research firm. But eight, I left that about eight years ago because the writing was on the wall. Yep. Clients were now asking, how much does an idea cost versus what can that idea do? Uh-huh. And they really went from marketers who were hired to spend money, which allowed you to experiment and create and try new things, to suddenly having to invest it and having people go, are we going to get a return? And that changed the whole psychology of marketing from uh, uh, you know, risking for reward to mitigating risk so I didn't get caught uh, wasting money. And that's the, the situation we're in now. And the second thing about agencies, which is so sad, is because it used to be about that big campaign we talked about, the Coke is it, the Michael Jackson and Pepsi, the agencies had such purpose because I was betting my, all my chips against that idea and that insight. Today, marketing's moving to a thousand pieces of bait in the water, and it's it's happening at the speed of life. So, clients for every for good reason are bringing a lot of that in house, and agencies are struggling with where is their purpose. And then on top of that, that that data and 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 the math that's happening in marketing has been taken over by the firms like Accenture and Deloitte. Mm-hmm. So, so agencies in general have got to reinvent themselves, and I think it's got to get back to the essence of what agencies always excel that is what is the insights that matter where's the journey my customers on your customers on and how can i calibrate our message and our product so that when they're at that point where they need a helping hand where they need uh they need to get to the next step on their journey our brand is positioned front and center and i think that unbiased uh unpartisan is where agencies have got to play the problem is with all these big multinational agencies that are so dependent on these big clients, they're not willing to have that conversation anymore for fear of losing that client's business. So where, where I think in the past where agencies like uh, David Ogilvie and Leo Burnett had stature, when they walked into a boardroom, people listened. They were world-renowned. They were thought leaders. They were, they were equal to a Michael Porter at a Harvard. And, and they, with that stature, they had the ability to convince clients to take risks, to do things differently, to take a, a, a Fruit Loop cereal and put a Toucan Sam cartoon on it and connect the dots, knowing that that would be the eye candy that the, that the kids would look for in the grocery store. I mean, they knew how to put all of that together. Today, I think we're playing uh, on our back. More, more often than not, agencies are playing on their back heels, constantly winning business by cutting fees, and in doing so, just creating a downward spiral that's going to be that I think is going to require massive reinvention. So you think these big names like publicists, WPP, Leo Burnett, who you mentioned, BBDO, and others, do do they ultimately go away? Like we're seeing this whole movement um, into the small niche agency world who have you know these agencies who have specific skill sets, say with Facebook media buying or some other platform that they specialize in. So does this whole world become more and more fragmented? I think boutiques are going to ha- continue to have a major role to play. The multinationals served a purpose for a long time when organizations were set up globally, brands were global. And what they try to do is saying, can I cut my marketing dollars by having one idea go across the world? Can I get efficiency rather than having all these head offices and all these different markets reinvent all the time? And that's where the BBDOs of the world did so well because they said, well, we're your agency. We're in, we're in every market you're in and we're not. We'll set up an office. 
But I think nowadays we're realizing that, you know, a Kylie Jenner doing a Pepsi ad is actually probably doing more harm than good for that brand because people want it highly personalized. And I think that's where the boutiques in the little countries, especially now I'm not betting $10 million in creating an ad anymore. It's an Instagram post or it's the Oreo being dunked in at, at when the power goes out. Those little, those little gems, those little seeds that can grow and flourish is really where I think marketing is, is interesting. But you, got, you have to still have clients that are courageous. And somebody that comes up to run a, a CPG company in Canada, chances are they're from the United States. They're doing this as a tour of duty to get back to a bigger job in the States. And they don't want to mess up market share or take that kind of risk. There's very few Tony Mattis who came out of uh, Frito-Lay or Dale Hooper out of Frito-Lay, uh, Mary DePauli out of Sun Life. There's very few of those people that are willing to say, my job is to take risk. My job is to experiment. My job is to put my career on the line because I owe it to my the customers and I owe it to my organization to create marketing that matters. Mm-hmm. Marketing that matters. Good last words. Tony, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, really appreciate your insight. Where can people connect with you if they want to learn more? The best way to do it is chatterthatmatters.ca. So that's chatterthatmatters.ca. And that's where I put my podcast. I do a lot of videos. And again, most of the content's not about me. It's talking to smart people like you and and uh, getting their lessons in life. So Adam, I honestly, I really appreciate it. One of the best interviews uh, I've been part of. And uh, I can see why you've got such a successful podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. Uh, appreciate the kind words. Thank you so much. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's his dad? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric acid. Electric acid.